This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Today is Tuesday, the 24th of March. This is the Informer Daily, and I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today, your COVID-19 update. It's been another day of lots of announcements, and we help you get caught up. Food Bank Australia is seeing a huge rise in the need for services. We speak to them about how to get support and what support they need from the community. We can turn every dollar that's donated to Food Bank into $6 worth of food. And two, when you are making donations to Food Bank, every 50 cents represents a meal for someone in need. So we are able to stretch every dollar further. Unemployment is surging in Australia right now. We speak to Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union about the situation and how they can help you. And we speak to queer author Bernard Galati about his new novel, The Origin of Me. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with your Joy 94.9 COVID-19 update. Queues outside of Centrelink have wrapped around the block for the second day after the government announced the closure of non-essential services, which will lead to an estimated 1 million job losses across Australia. The MyGov website is still experiencing intermittent issues and Services Australia are now urging people who will be requiring government assistance in the coming months to call them on 132850 instead of going to Centrelink offices. There have been reports of problems with all major telecommunication networks in Australia with phone lines being jammed across the country. Much like the MyGov websites, these outages appear to be the result of large influx of people attempting to use these services. Australians who are looking to withdraw money from their superannuation funds in the coming months have been warned to look out for scams. Chief Executive of the Association of Superannuation Funds of Australia, Dr Martin Fay, is urging the public to be wary of unsolicited calls from people posing as telemarketers. He's also said that super funds should only be accessed as a last resort because taking out $10,000 now would have a significant impact on retirement savings. Looking to the states, Victorian schoolchildren have started school holidays a week early as schools prepare to take all lessons online. Schools will remain open for the children of essential needs workers like nurses and doctors. The ACT is following a similar model to Victoria, with Chief Minister Andrew Barr saying no child will be turned away from school. The closure of schools in the ACT and Victoria is not in line with the current federal government policy, which is encouraging the states to keep all schools open. The Spirit of Tasmania has halted all services for non-essential travellers into Tasmania, with only Tasmanian residents being exempted from these new rules. The Tasmanian Premier Peter Goodwin has said interstate travellers entering the state from today onward would be told to leave immediately. And cruise ship MSC Magnifica has docked in Fremantle, Western Australia. Over 250 passengers on the ship have allegedly reported upper respiratory issues, though these claims are denied by the company that owns the ship. 
None of the 1,700 passengers are Australian. Premier Mark McGowan said that no one on the ship will be allowed on shore, with the ship only being allowed to dock so that it can refuel. If you suspect you may have COVID-19, contact the dedicated hotline at 1800 675 398. For additional information, call the Coronavirus Health Information Line on 1800 020 080. A lot of you may be hearing us for the first time, and we'd love to hear what you think. Send us an email, theinformer at joy.org.au. That's theinformer at joy.org.au. Or you can write on our Facebook page. You're listening to the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 in Melbourne and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Many Australians find themselves without easy access to food even in the best of times, and those people rely on Food Bank to help them get their essential meals every day. Food Bank played a big role in getting supplies out to rural communities affected by the bushfires last fire season and saw an enormous outpouring of support from Australians. However, with the COVID-19 crisis causing even more widespread supply shortages for many people, Food Bank is receiving even more requests for help with providing food to those in need. The Informer Daily today spoke with CEO of Food Bank, Brianna Casey, to find out more about the issue and how you can help. For the benefit of our listeners, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Brianna Casey. I'm Chief Executive Officer of Food Bank Australia. Um, and so tell me about what Food Bank Australia is doing in response to the corona crisis. Um, <laughs> a lot is the short answer. Food Bank exists to support people who are in crisis, and we operate year-round to assist vulnerable Australians who might be experiencing crisis for whatever reason. It might be someone who has lost employment. It might be someone who's escaping domestic violence. It might be someone who doesn't have a buffer in their household budget and something unexpected has happened to them, whether it be an unexpected medical incident or something just out of the norm that's happened, and it's meant that food has suddenly become a discretionary item. They're making conscious decisions between heating and eating. They're making conscious decisions about where they allocate funds within the family and who they can feed as a consequence. So that's what we do year round. And at the moment, we're assisting 815,000 people per month, which is a huge number. Added to that everyday job that Food Bank um, conducts throughout the country, we also assist with natural disaster relief and in pandemic crises like the one we are dealing with at the moment. So we've seen a truly Um, unprecedented summer where we've seen the extended provisions and impacts of drought. Then we've seen the bushfire crisis where we were engaged in most states and territories to respond really rapidly and at scale to make sure we could get emergency food relief to communities. And we saw such an outpouring of support from Victorians in particular, who came in droves uh, throughout the first couple of weeks in January to donate food and groceries to Food Bank to allow us to get those essential supplies out to community. Never did we imagine that within a matter of weeks after we had finished that really intense emergency relief phase, that we would be going into something that was even more challenging for Food Bank, and that is COVID-19. Every state and territory food bank across the country has been hit with demand for food relief that we have never experienced before. We've all seen in the last few days uh, these extraordinary queues of people outside Centrelink offices as so many Australians unfortunately lose employment. We know those Australians need access to food relief. We know that the, the incomes are going to be tight for a lot of people if they exist at all in the coming months. And we need to make sure that Food Bank has access to enough food, to enough funds and enough people 
to make sure we can get that emergency food relief to families who are truly in an unprecedented crisis. So can you tell me about what some of the things that are causing um, people to, some people to have, have, have this food shortage as well? Because as I understand it, it's people are facing unemployment. There's also been some uh, supply buyouts. Some supermarkets have been targeted. The you know the big one is toilet paper, but also like meats, non-perishable foods, stuff like that has been targeted. I actually remember in the first week of the Corona crisis, the supermarkets around my area were almost cleared out, and they've restocked since. So that doesn't seem to be an issue with the supply line. But I imagine that's different for a lot of places. It does vary markedly across the country. And we started to see panic buying a number of weeks ago. And Food Bank was one of the first organisations to call it out and to really emphasise to consumers and customers around the country, one, that Australia is not going to run out of food. We know that our wonderful farmers, our extraordinary food and grocery industry, produce enough food in this country to feed 75 million people. That's three times the Australian population. We are not at risk of running out of food. The challenge is getting the right food to the right locations in the right timeframes to make sure there aren't shortages. And what we saw in those first couple of weeks uh, was panic buying in supermarkets and stockpiling in supermarkets. And that was having a really unintended consequence on vulnerable people in Australia. What we were seeing was that the elderly or people who need carers and, and assistance to leave their homes perhaps once a week or once a fortnight in order for them to go and go through that really dignified experience of going to a supermarket and being able to select the items that they want and need. When they were making those outings to supermarkets, they were finding that the shelves were bare. And it's truly unfair that our most vulnerable in our community are being impacted in that way. So we did call it out very early and we encouraged people to think about the impacts of their buying on the most vulnerable. And we have been really pleased to see over the last few weeks a real shift in the way that people are having these discussions. I hope we are going to continue to see people being more thoughtful when they are in supermarkets to make sure that they're conducting quote-unquote normal purchases, that we're buying enough certainly to last your family for two weeks, but anything beyond that isn't going to be helpful to those who are vulnerable. The challenge we have at Food Bank, about 80% of our total volumes that we have come through the Food Bank network come from what we call food rescue. So we are rescuing food that may have otherwise been destined for landfill. I'm talking about food that is perfectly edible that may not look quite right. So we're talking about fresh fruit and vegetables, the bananas that are too bendy, the tomatoes that are the wrong shade of red, potatoes that are the wrong size. They're all incredibly nutritious and delicious, but they're not going to make it to the supermarket for whatever reason. We rescue those fruit, uh, fruits and vegetables. We rescue products from manufacturers that might have new branding or damaged packaging. We're not seeing any of that rescue come through our what we call a surprise chain. It's not a supply chain. We never know what we're going to get. So our surprise chains have essentially wound to a halt at the moment because there simply isn't surplus in the surprise chain for us to be able to rescue. So we've seen extreme shortages of a number of product lines across food banks around the country. As a consequence, we've had to place limits on the amount of products that people can take. Um, and I should emphasize, food bank distributes food through a network 
1,400 charities. So we're not direct to the public. We go through charities, household names like Salvos, Binnies, Red Cross, Anglicare, down to local community groups. It might be a community church group. It might be a domestic violence shelter. It might be a refugee uh, outreach centre. That's the way we distribute our foods. And what we don't want to see is situations where we can't provide essential products, whether they be toilet paper that everyone's talking about uh, or whether it be UHT milk and, and canned products and so on. We need to be able to supply those into the charities because if those charities don't have those products, then the people who are reliant on those charities don't have them either. So we're working very closely with government as well as the retail sector, as well as our manufacturers, to look at whether we can have prioritised access for food relief. And what that would mean is that whilst we have this period where demand for food is skyrocketing, that we can still make sure we have guaranteed access to essential food and grocery items. We saw Coles come out on the weekend and commit to providing a million dollars worth retail of food and groceries to both Food Bank and Second Bite. We've seen Woolworths make some really strong commitments, but we need to recognise we have a huge task ahead of us. Uh, We have a number of people who are contacting Food Bank and we ask that listeners be really patient with us. We're working our hardest to make sure we can connect you with local charities. We know that the retailers are also looking at online home delivery access for the most vulnerable. It's all a work in progress. We know the need is there. There's no question about that. We just need to make sure that we can get this assistance out where it's needed really quickly. Uh, The concern we have ongoing is that demand for food relief was already outstripping supply. Add to that coronavirus on top of what's happened with bushfires and it really is the perfect storm where demand for food relief is skyrocketing and will continue to skyrocket in the months ahead as this economic recession bites. But will we have enough supplies to give to the, to the many, many charities and many people who need us? That's the big question right now. So if anyone who is listening to this go out um, wants to help, I've seen that you're um, that you've started a donation drive for financial donations. Um, but what kind of things can people do to support Food Bank in making sure that the people in need get essential foods? There's a number of ways people can assist us, and the one thing I really want to emphasise is it does vary state to state. In some food bank states and territories, we are looking for food and grocery donations, so you are welcome to bring products in. Please check your local food bank socials or or food bank website around that. For example, in Western Australia, there is a drive-through process where traditionally we would have people come to our warehouse uh, and drop products off. Because of our enhanced hygiene and social distancing policies in place, we have an arrangement at the moment where people can essentially drive up and they will have their car unloaded for them. There will be no touching uh, of one another and appropriate social distancing and so on. But that's a great way for people to bring in products that are needed. Uh, And we're particularly looking at ambient products, so not chilled or frozen, but products that you would have in the pantry. Um, In all states and territories, we need funding assistance. So we have said to people they are welcome to donate funds and we certainly do need that in the months ahead. Um, There's two really important things for people to know about funding. One, because of our extraordinary relationships with manufacturers, farmers and the food and grocery industry, we can turn every dollar that's donated to Food Bank into $6 worth of food. And two, when you are making donations to Food Bank, every 50 cents represents a meal for someone in need. So we are able to stretch every dollar further. The last way that people can assist, and again, it varies from state to state, is by volunteering. 
we need a 1,000 volunteers nationally to make food bank work, and that's per week. Uh, at the moment, a lot of our corporate volunteers who traditionally come in as team-building activities simply aren't available because they're being asked to work remotely or they're no longer employed. So we've lost a huge chunk of volunteers that we traditionally see. And like so many other charities out there, our regular volunteers tend to be older Australians who might be at the retirement age or, or in that particular age demographic. And of course, they are self-isolating, as has been the health and medical advice. So we're extremely short on volunteers in many states and territories. If you jump on the Food Bank website, foodbank.org.au, you will see a way where you can register to volunteer at your local state and territory food bank, and we would love to see people come through. Of course, only if you are fitting well and only if you are not self-isolating, but anyone who does have time on their hands and they are fitting well, we'd love to see you at Food Bank. That was Food Bank CEO Brianna Casey speaking to Informer reporter Nicholas Kamenier-Sandry. Just a reminder that if you want to support Food Bank through donations or by volunteering, go to their website at foodbank.org.au. If you want to get food from Food Bank, they recommend you go to the website askeasy.org.au. That's A-S-K-I-Z-Z-Y.org.au. And you can select which service you need, whether it's food or some other support. You put in your postcode and find options. You're listening to the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. There were some pretty shocking scenes outside Centrelink offices around the country yesterday, and apparently again this morning. There's a lot of confusion about how to make a claim, how to prove identity, and struggling with electronic systems that crashed. I spoke to Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union for an update. There's been a huge amount of change over the last, what, 72 hours and how um, social services are being delivered. A lot of people have been made unemployed on very short notice. What are you seeing? Well, you know, we're seeing you know, absolute unprecedented chaos in the social security system, to be honest. Um, you know, new data has come out uh, just this morning that Australia is looking like its unemployment rate is going to increase from 5.1% to about 15%. So this roughly translates to uh, 2, 2 million new uh, unemployed uh, people and a system that's you know, currently proving um, you know, incredibly unable to cope. Um, so I'm sure listeners you know, probably saw either in person or on social media or on the news, the huge queues um, spilling out of spilling out of Centrelinks. Uh, this, has, this has a lot to do with... Uh, the coalition cutting a lot of staff and shutting down a lot of physical Centrelinks um, over the last mm-hmm. half half decade. Also has a little bit to do with a lot of Centrelink workers, uh, you know, choosing to self isolate or or being sick themselves. So that was sort of a perfect storm of lack of service delivery um, in the in the digital digital space because uh, a lot of people do make applications uh, online. Uh, we've seen uh, since. Um, since late, late last week, um, the, the MyGov portal and the Centrelink website has just been fundamentally unable to cope um, with, the, with the demand. Uh, we, we heard uh, the Human Services Minister, Stuart Robert, um, yesterday say they don't, that the website could only 
uh, tolerate having uh, 55,000 users using it at the same time. Um, yesterday morning, about 95,000 Australians uh, tried to get onto the system at the same time. Therefore, the system crashed. Uh, so they haven't really done <laughs> that, uh, that, that work to ensure, uh, you know, both, both the online system and physical service centers can, can, can accommodate the huge booming unemployed, unemployed population we're seeing right now. And is some of that due to Centrelink's computer systems? Um, yeah, absolutely. Like even even at the even at the best of times, and I'm sure you know listeners with experience of the system, um, you know, how can can attest to all the glitches, um, all the errors therein, um, a lot of problems with the automation doing weird things, punishing people unfairly, that kind of thing. So even you know when we're when we're not in crisis um, at the, at the best of times, um, this system. Um, has already has already been 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 doing this, and there's and there's huge huge problems um, with it. Um, and groups like ours have tried to tried to beat the drum on this and and make it clear uh, to Centrelink to make the system more uh, more robust. Um, they're telling us they're 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 trying to do that do that now. Um, but look, they had they had weeks to prepare. Uh, you know, government knew. Uh, predictions for for what might happen uh, during this outbreak. Uh, they had time to strengthen um, these digital portals, which are more important now than ever as as people uh, continue to continue to self isolate. So we saw giant crowds outside Central Lake offices yesterday, and um, what were they trying to do? So from from what I can. Gather speaking to speaking to a few of the people um, in the queue. Uh, these were these were new uh, applicants, uh, mostly for the for the new job seeker job seeker payment, uh, which which the government um, has promised to to double in about a, about a month's time. Um, these are these are people who are who are fresh to the system, so need a new account created, uh, and they were under the impression because government didn't tell them otherwise uh, that they still needed to go in. Uh, to a physical site, uh, because usually you have to 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 create a new uh, Centrelink claim. Like you have to, you know, wave at a physical person your your hundred points of ID, uh, for example, and get your C- CRN and verify your identity. So people were left under the impression that they had to go in to do that because that was the information made available to them. When this started happening, when we started seeing the queues yesterday, and and just looking. At socials today, there are, there are still massive queues outside Centrelink's all across the country, which is very sad and and, and dangerous. Um, but yesterday, we got onto we got onto the department um, to to tell them to make it possible for people to you know complete their claims through through a mixture of of digital and through the phone. Um, and and by about midday, we got a we got a press release from Stuart Robert uh, saying that they were going to waive um, you know those. Those processes that required people to come in to a physical location and people can verify their their identity by calling in. But again, you know, these this this is another problem uh, that the government should have should have foreseen. Um, it's a problem with them um, not not acting not acting quick enough uh, to make all these processes online via the phone and just not communicating clearly uh, enough uh, to the to the thousands hundreds of thousands of people accessing the system. What can the Australian Unemployed Workers Union do to support unemployed workers? Yes, yeah, so we're the we're the only national representative body uh, for unemployed workers. Uh, we've since tw- since two thousand and fourteen, we've run uh, a free uh, advocacy 
service, both both via the phone uh, and we run an online advocacy service, basically uh, helping uh, people through what is you know what is and has been for a long time a very complicated labyrinthine system. So we have people people on the phones, uh, we have people people online uh, ready to ready to help anyone. Uh, make a successful claim, or, or if they need to, if they need to co- make a complaint, or if they have any other any other issues uh, in the in in the system, and um, we have a team of of advocates on hand. So if anyone wants to go to unemployedworkersunion.com, they can access all those services for free. Um, we're also continuing uh, to campaign uh, as well. Like we were, we were leaders um, in the campaign. Uh, to to raise the rate of of new start of the unemployment benefit, uh, where we're happy that uh, the government has at, at least now consented um, to a to a temporary uh, increase um, of that through this um, through this crisis period. But we'll be campaigning for them uh, to make that to make that permanent. Um, so that's that's something else that people can um, can support us with and and, and join um, that campaign um, because we know now that you know there's there's no fiscal restraints here and um, the government could have could have could have always increased the unemployment benefit uh, they finally have so now the the work ahead for us is to make it as hard for them as possible to to remove it in six months. That was Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Debut queer author Bernard Galati has just released his first novel, The Origin of Me, a coming-of-age story about learning to accept yourself and all the unusual quirks that come with it. So for the benefit of our listeners, Bernard Galati, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Bernard. Uh, I am a first uh, debut novel writer. Uh, my, my new book is called The Origin of Me. Uh, before that, I did a number of children's books. And before that, I used to be an animator. Currently, I'm working as an um, education guide at different locations in Sydney. So your new book is called The Origin of Me. It's a fabulous title. How did you come up with that? Well, it it has at its core there's there's a a, a theme that um, that is influenced by um, by uh, the idea of evolution and genetics and eugenics and that sort of thing. It, it sounds a bit heavy handed, but it's very it's, it's light and buoyant reading, but it's got that 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 behind it. So it's a bit of a play on the um, the protagonist who's called Lincoln Locke trying to discover his own roots. He's got a genetic anomaly himself that he's troubled by and he's trying to get on top of that. But it's also just um, echoing um, Darwin's or, on, on the origin of species. So it's a bit of a play on that. So can you tell me a little bit more, without going into too much spoilers, because we want people to read the book, um, the character of Lincoln Locke, tell us about him. What kind of things does he do in the novel? What, do you, what, do you, what, what can we look forward to uh, when we open the pages? So, so Lincoln Locke's um, typical, but not typical, fifteen-year-old in that he um, he lives on Sydney's northern beaches in a really nice area, and his, but his parents have very successful parents have split up, and he's been sent to live with his father in Sydney's eastern suburbs and attend this very elite private school. So it could be a story of any fifteen-year-old going through those sorts of things. But then he has this little hairy nub that's beginning to develop at the base of his spine, which he's troubled by. Wouldn't be such a problem, except that he's been drafted into the um, to the school swimming squad, and that's where the problems begin to um, 
to take shape. But adding interest to the whole mix is a 19th century memoir they discovers in the school library. So uh, and he begins reading that and finds these strange connections to himself of this character's story of um, being in a freak show in the 19th century. So it's um, it's uh, these parallel these parallel narratives uh, kind of wind around each other. And if you think of a DNA molecule, it's like they're the two threads of the story and those connecting bridges are um, objects, artifacts, that these objects that he finds and that they appear in the book. So you get this lovely kind of connection of this contemporary story of his um, kind of, and these wild connections to the 19th century um, memoir. Can you tell me more about which personal experiences you drew from as inspiration for this book? So in in the book as a whole, it's not autobiographical, but some of the moments, like many of the moments are just mixed up, added ingredients, just some are like just absolutely direct experiences. So I had, I had a bit of a, um, in terms of like the body issue, I was a little bit, to be really frank, I was a little bit prematurely hirsute. I'm half Greek. And so I was like um, pretty hairy when I was like, you know, like 13 or something like that and going to a swimming carnival. So the, that absolute essence of him being in the, um, in the, um, in the swimming squad is just straight from me of, of having to like, you know, no idea of like, doing the kind of body beautiful thing and shaving down or getting laser or anything when you're a young kind of teenager. So I just remember the humiliation of being like hairy. And I went to the beach one time and this girl just yelled out in front of this crowded beach, oh my God, what a hairy beast. When <laughs> I was a young, <laughs> oh my God. When I was like, seriously, when I was a young teenager. And I think um, that everyone's got these We've all got these little things, and that was why I wanted it to be universal. Because when I performed the play um, many years later, I had this experience, Nicholas, of people coming up to me, and you know, it's it's the, the play. He just gets reviled. The, the character of Gregor Samson, like ultimately, like you know, like his father throws an apple into his back and all this kind of stuff. And I had people come up to me after the performance, really moved, and saying they'd seen their life performed on stage. And I just wanted to really put um, some of that, some of my own experience of not necessarily do it to the outside world, a huge kind of issue, but you know, when you've got something kind of really gnawing at you or something that you're really ashamed of within yourself, it's like, and it's not spoken about, it's, it's a big thing. So probably to put it in a nutshell from my own personal experience, because it's gone to the book, probably being shackled by shame. And it's really a metaphor for that and that coming out of that, coming out in whatever sense, not just necessarily, um, you know, in a queer way, but um, bringing that to light and sometimes having it just absolutely evaporated by being open is really the part of me that I've put into the book. Is, is there a place online that, that people can order it? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I was just saying, if you're in a neighbourhood where there is stores still open, like your local bookstore would love to be supported if it's safe. But um, if you just go on penguin.com.au, all the um, platforms are there. Like um, you can buy it as an e- you can you can order it and have it delivered, which is still open. You can um, buy it as an ebook. That was author Bernard Galati speaking to Nicholas Kamenu-Sandri.
today to Jordan Johnstone, Rachel Tyler-Jones, Clayton Wimshurst, Ange Berry, Alejandro Leighton, and all the folks at the Community Radio Network. Special thanks to Nicholas Kamenyar-Sandry, Emily Johnson, and Dee Mason for their production help today. I've been your host, Arian Ponce. Mahalo. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au, and of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.